Welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship, where we are all about the glory of God and the good of His people. It is a privilege to be able to share this online resource with you, and we pray that it is a blessing to you, that it builds up your faith and encourages you on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. You are all condemned men. We keep you alive to serve this ship, so row well and live. The words of the council, Quintus Arius, as he addresses the prisoners aboard his Roman warship. Of course, among the rowers is the bare-backed, sun-scorched, whip-scarred man that you might be familiar with, Judah Ben-Hur, a.k.a. Prisoner 41, a man who had been falsely accused, a man who had been condemned, a man who had been assigned to serve as a rower aboard a ship a man who, really, none of us would not be surprised at his attitude, at his uh, demeanor, after having served for over three years on ships like the one he was currently serving on, enduring the back-breaking, muscle-tearing, day-in, day-out labor that he was subjected to. After the council speaks, we see a close-up of Judah's eyes, inflamed with resentment, fury, inextinguishable determination. This is a man who was beaten, but not broken. This was a man to fear. A man who really, I mean, could you blame him for being filled with hate? In fact, that's what Arius sees in him. He says, your eyes are full of hate, 41. That's good. Hate is what keeps a man alive. It gives him strength. You know, aside from the incredible music score and the fantastic sets and the phenomenal cast of characters, one of the things that makes the 1959 uh, adaptation of Lew Wallace's epic novel, what makes it is the way that it captures and communicates primal human emotions. And I don't know about you, but when I watch that film, it resonates something in me. We hate injustice, don't we? We hate it. We hate it when, we, when the corrupt and the, the self-important and the abusive and the privileged, uh, the undeserving, they're, they're in a position to use us and misuse us and abuse us and uh, do all sorts of things to us that we would prefer they didn't do, and even drag us down to miserable depths along with them because of their folly. And so when we see that quiet, boiling rage in Charlton Heston's eyes, it stirs something in us, and our, and our hearts burn along with his, and they long for retribution. There is a propensity a propensity in the offended human heart to seethe, to curse, to, to condemn. And when calamity does come upon those who have wronged us, to revel in their demise. You made your bed, now lie in it. Have you been offended? Are the people in your life who've done you wrong or whose beliefs... Uh, behaviors, they stand in opposition to yours. Maybe even people who you might say have 
oppressed you. Maybe you've been inclined to, to look beyond them even and, and, and actually to look upward and to say things like, how on earth could, could a good God, a God who claims to love me, how could he allow this kind of suffering in my life or these kind of people to have this kind of effect on my life? The Apostle Paul, like the fictional Judah Ben-Hur, found himself aboard a Roman ship. He too was a captive, a prisoner on a voyage. And yet, unlike Judah, in and I think so unlike what we are tempted to be, his posture, once again, we find is just so, so different. What we have here in Acts 27 is a powerful example of how a servant of the high king navigates the tempest and regards his offenders and even oppressors. Verse 1 of chapter 27 reads like this. It says, and when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And we're off. Can you, can you smell the salt in that fresh ocean air? Do you feel that refreshing breeze just flowing through your hair? And it's just excitement and adventure out there on the open sea. Uh, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> this was not a pleasure cruise. Paul's headed for Rome. He's headed for what very well could be his final hearing. What we do know is that in Paul's mind, Rome, it's not the last stop on his bucket list. Did you know that? Not the last stop. We know from his letter to the Romans, he had his sights set beyond Rome. He wanted to go to another place, a place where he believed the gospel had not even reached, and that was Spain. Rome's just a layover in his mind. But God knew it was in store for his servant. Along with Paul, there are a couple of friends. This guy named Aristarchus from Thessalonica. And from the way this passage is worded, we're inclined to believe that the writer of Acts is along with him, Dr. Luke. Now, some suppose that these two men, they actually took the roles of Paul's slaves so that they could accompany him on this journey. In command... Roman centurion named Julius. When they make port in Sidon, the first place they make port in, we find that Julius doesn't seem to have any ill will towards Paul. In fact, in verse 3, it says, he treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And so here we are. We find that even though he's a prisoner here on this journey to Rome, God's still paving the way for him to serve, even as a prisoner. No doubt Paul was an encouragement to the Christians he met, just as it says they cared for him. As you find yourself being carried along by life's current, are you looking for opportunity? Are you laying hold of opportunities that God gives you to bless and encourage others? 
even when maybe by, by the best you could tell, life doesn't seem to be going so well for you, not ideal. The next day, we're off again, slowly now moving towards their next port. The winds aren't in their favor. And this is a smallish, smallish vessel that they're in, and so they are trying to avoid open water, and so they sail up and around the island of Cyprus trying to avoid those strong winds. Upon reaching a place called Mira, they board a larger ship that's sailing for Italy. Now, Mira was a hub. It's a hub for moving grain around the empire, and it would go from places like Egypt to Rome and so forth. Verse 7 says this, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone, coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. And this is where a decision has to be made. Now, apparently, the journey was taking a lot longer than was expected. They're now entering into a time of year where it was not ideal for sea travel. Sea travel was actually typically avoided during this season. Verse 10, it tells us there's a discussion going on, and Paul actually chimes into the discussion. What should be done? He says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also for our lives. And you can imagine how the captain of the ship and this Roman centurion thought about getting advice from a prisoner. <laughs> oh, really? That's what you think? Okay. Paul's urging them not to put back out to sea. Stay there in the winter in fair havens there. At this point in his life, he'd been through three shipwrecks. Apparently, he wasn't too keen on enduring another one. But you know what was well known? That because of the way Fair Havens was situated on the sea there, it's not an ideal place to spend the winter. Harbor was susceptible to strong winter winds and cold. The ship is going to sustain, probably sustain damage just sitting there in the harbor, and it's not going to be a pleasant stay. Well, they decide instead, let's, let's shoot for Phoenix. It's about 40 miles west up the coast. And it would have been a much better place to, to batten down the hatches and endure the season. And that, we see in the verses that follow, was a huge mistake. The winds blew gently at first. Oh, this is, this is okay. It's looking good. But it didn't take long for all of that to dramatically change when as verse 14 says, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster is struck down from land. Let me read to you what happened here. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Things are not going well here. The oncoming wind, it's so strong that all they can do is just, just give in to it, and now they're pulled out further into the open sea. Things get worse. They decide, we need to pull in the lifeboat. Lifeboat was typically uh, trailed, uh, uh, towed uh, along behind the boat. We need to bring this thing in because that's our only source of safety. They carry it up on to the deck. Verse 17. 
After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. And this is where they took rope or cable and they ran it under the hull of the ship, strapped it tight to hold this thing together with all of the waves crashing and the stress put on that hull. They wanted to make sure it didn't fall apart. Then fearing, then fearing that they would run aground around, uh, ground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now, we're not exactly sure what's referred to by the, the gear here being lowered. It could be the sails were lowered, they were brought down. It could refer to an anchor that was dropped down. Maybe it refers to both. We're not sure. The point is, they're doing everything they can to make sure they're not stranded on the Sirtis, which are the sandbags off the north coast of Africa. This is nerve-rattling, desperate situation. They begin tossing things overboard to save their lives, stay afloat. The storm continues. Seasoned sailors and battle-hardened soldiers, everyone begins to find themselves shaken to the core, coming to grips with the reality. This is, this is it. This is going to be the end. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now let me ask you something. What, what would you have been thinking? What, what would you have been feeling? I mean, here, here you are a prisoner. You're at the mercy of, of these men, these, these sailors and these soldiers. You had warned them in fa fair havens, we can't go out there. It's too risky to put out to sea this time of the year. Don't you know that? You should know that. No, they wouldn't listen to him. <laughs> of all the arrogant, selfish, lame brain moves, right? Good thing you and I have never experienced anything like that. We've never found ourselves in a difficult situation where resources have gotten scarce or things have gotten tense or our quality of life or our health or our finances have taken a hit because of some decision that other people out there have made, right? We've never experienced that. We've certainly never been the victims of someone else's moral, poor moral decisions, right? Yeah, right. I've felt it. You've felt it. We know very well what it's like to be impacted by the decisions of others. We go full well. We're living in a society here where just about everyone affects everyone. The choices that are being made by our fellow citizens, well, they have an impact on the laws on, under which we have to abide by or the authorities that we have to live under, right? I mean, it's everyday life. I mean, the, the, the drivers on the road, they cause us to make sudden stops or swerves or even miss our, our off-ramps. Uh, the way the neighbors park their cars. The volume that they listen to their music next door. Their decisions they make to smoke cigarettes upwind of us. Hmm. They all have an impact, right? They can be the smallest thing in the world. Smallest thing in the world. It doesn't take much to set us off, to set our hearts on a negative trajectory and leave us feeling a lot less favorable towards them, maybe even wishing them a, a, a little bit of harm. <laughs> There's a propensity in the offended human heart to seethe, to curse, to condemn. And when calamity does come upon those who have wrong, wronged us, well, to revel in their demise, <laughs> getting what 
they get what's coming to them. Navigating the storm, it can quickly digress into a clash of the titans. Paul was definitely facing a storm of his own. But as we've seen so many times throughout the book of Acts, here again, we see the way he navigates this is so different from the way we might be inclined to. No, it wasn't Paul's fault that he was in the storm. It wasn't his fault at all. He'd warned them, shelter in place. Just like is so often the case with us, Paul found himself in a situation where he was not responsible for this, nor did he have any control over it. In the midst of the tempest, things must have felt like they were out of control on the verge of an absolute catastrophic end. Verse 21, since they had been without food a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, he should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And there we go. There it is. There's the human nature coming out, right? This is where we tell ourselves, see, Paul really is human. He's telling him, I told you so. I told you so. Should have listened. So often there's points in life where we are so tempted to just, just gloat. <laughs> Things may not be great, but at least we can enjoy the fact the truth is coming out. We were right, they were wrong, and they're getting what's coming to them. But you know, before we think that Paul is trying to cut them down here, we've got to keep on reading. Because the context of this really makes a big difference. He goes on to say, Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. And so we see here that the only reason that he says, you should have listened to me, it's not to gloat. It's not to condemn. All he's trying to do is say, listen to me now. You should have listened to me then. You didn't. Okay, here's where we're at. But listen to me now. Not about piling up condemnation on top of them. It's about convincing them. Because ultimately, Paul knows that his God is their one and only hope. And so the wind is howling and the waves are thrashing and their fates seem to be set. But Paul seizes the opportunity and calls them, calls these poor souls to trust in his God. Take heart, men, he says. Why should they take heart? Because if they just trust in God as Paul does, there's every reason to hope. Have you had opportunities like that? Have you had people sharing with you their hopeless woes? It's, it's just the worst. And maybe they're sharing with you about the economy, or it's about uh, the homeless crisis, or it's about uh, what's being taught in public schools, or what's happening at the border, what's happening on the Gaza Strip. Maybe it's about their health, any number of things they might be grieving about. And I've been in those conversations. I'm sure you have. And I feel that urge well up inside of me to sympathize with them. I know what they're going through. And the response that I'm tempted to give goes something like this. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, it's really, it's just terrible. The head shake. You know, we're aware of the head shake. Yeah, 
I feel you. I feel you. It is bad. I'm so sorry. It's good to sympathize. And yet, how many opportunities have I missed to point people to the hope that I know that they can have in Jesus? Why do I let chances go to tell them that even though things feel like they're falling apart, and yes, a lot of bad stuff is happening, but you know, God is actually working. We can go back to Ephesians 1. God's actually working in the background. He's going to bring all things to himself here. After after 14 days, the ship is still being driven. 14, that's two weeks. Unrelenting storm. Verse 27 says that they were on the Adriatic Sea. But, you know, back in those days, the Adriatic uh, refers to far more than what the Adriatic, the the little portion that it refers to these days. They're out in the open Mediterranean Sea. They're being hurled toward Sicily. And in the middle of the night, the sailors, they begin to suspect that land is near. Not sure what gave that up to them. But they begin checking for the depth. And as time went on, it became clear that the water was getting shallower and shallower. So that at one point, they, they start to panic. We're going to run aground. This, this ship could be busted in pieces. And so they lay four anchors. They begin praying for daylight. That's when some of the sailors, they, just, they can't stand it any longer, and they come up with a scheme to trick everyone else into thinking that they're lowering the lifeboat to set more anchors. We're going down, we're going to save this ship, but in reality, all they were planning on doing was abandoning ship and saving themselves, and that's when Paul intervenes, and verse 31 says this, Paul says to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, they cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Man, I think I would have just been content to just say, all right, let's, let's see what happens here. Let's watch the, the sea claim these guys. They get what they deserve. My heart has a long, long way to go when it comes to caring for others. What about you? Paul wrote in Romans 5, 7, One will scarcely die for a righteous person. His point, of course, is that some people might actually be inclined to pay the ultimate price, to to make the ultimate sacrifice to save a good person. Do you feel sympathy when good people are in a tough spot? That's why watching Ben-Hur, that's why it resonates with me. I care for that guy. I know he's been wronged. He's a good guy who's been dealt a bad hand. My heart goes out to him, but you know what? I don't feel the same way about the bad guys. No, I don't. They're getting what's coming to them. How do you feel? But here's something that people belonging to Jesus need to think very, very carefully about. And that is the reality that were it not for our king caring for the bad guys, the ones who should get what they deserve, the ones who should 
get to lay in the beds that they've made for themselves. If it were not for him, well, we'd all still be lost in our sins. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die, Paul writes. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul's care for these self-centered, scheming, devious sailors and saving them for what would have a certain death had they gotten into that lifeboat, that reflects the heart of his Savior. Friends, there's something for us to learn here, isn't there? Paul continues to care for these undeserving men in verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair, on your, uh, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. This is amazing. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. It's really amazing. I mean, even in the storm, Paul knows that his God is with him. He doesn't resent the Lord for putting him in this situation, does he? No, he trusts him. He even thanks him. That's not an easy thing to thank God when you are in the eye of the storm, is it? It's not easy. And here he was with these people who were commissioned to delivering him over to Rome for trial. A bunch of others who had taken him into this storm and he doesn't wish them harm. <laughs> On the contrary, no, instead, he does all he can for their deliverance. And some people on them might say, well, what a waste. This is just ridiculous. I mean, even if they do survive here, these people don't care about Paul. They're just going to deliver him over to the, the Roman authorities, to the emperor, to be tried there. Why should Paul do anything to help these people? But you know, as we've seen before, you never know how God is going to work. And you never know through whom God is going to work to bring about his plans. Check out the dramatic way this journey ends. Now, when it was day... They did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors, and they left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. 
And so it was that all who were brought safe that all were brought safely to land. And here they are caught on the reef. And they they're, they're being torn to pieces by the merciless breakers. It was clear the ship is lost. It's it's gone. And that's when the soldiers decide, we get, we're going to do what must be done. If we don't kill these prisoners, if these prisoners escape, we know that could mean our lives. So they plan to slaughter them instead of giving them a fighting chance. Julius wouldn't let that happen. Why? Probably because the way Paul conducted himself. He proved that He's not a man that should be killed. What's more, <laughs> this centurion came to, came to know Paul's character. He knew that Paul could be trusted. Paul's not going to run away. He's not going to try to escape, even if he does make it to shore. He's probably just going to be helping people get, get onto the sand. Friends, the way that you and I conduct ourselves even among those who do not share our faith, don't seem to share our same morals, our same values, or our allegiances, that matters, does it not? It matters. Our lives are to bear witness to a watching world of the difference that Christ Jesus has made in them. They're to testify to everyone that our king is king. And we don't know exactly what happened to this centurion, Julius. Some believe he's among those whom Paul refers to in his letter to the Philippians, which Paul writes from his prison cell in Rome. Philippians 1.12 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ." And we got to ask ourselves, are we going to see this guy, Julius, in heaven? He's a member of the Augustan court, which really could mean that he is a member of this imperial guard. Some believe we're going to find Julius there in heaven. You know, we often ask ourselves why God is allowing us to experience the storms that we experience in life. Could it be? One of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons, is that by the way we navigate the tempest, others might see the light of Jesus shining through us and join with us in glorifying our Father in heaven. It's possible, isn't it? It's possible. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, in 4-7, we have this treasure jars of clay. If you know anything about jars of clay, you know that they're fragile. We have the treasure in there to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, not crushed, perplexed, not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our 
bodies? Is the life of Jesus shining through you as you navigate the storms of life? Is it being made manifest? The life of Jesus, it's just, it's, it's, it, it's visible. It's undeniable. Look at the way they're weathering the storm. The life of, something's different. Something doesn't make sense. You know what it is? It's the life of Jesus. It's more than possible that God uses the difficult moments in our lives to put on display the awesome presence and difference that Christ has made on the inside of us. Amen? And it's also possible that he uses the storms that we experience to take us places that we would have otherwise never, ever set foot. Deliver the hope of the gospel in a place where it has not yet been heard, like the island of Malta. And that is what we're going to look at next week. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you make yourself known in the storm. Lord, our hearts tell us to respond in one way. They tell us to be frustrated. They tell us to be angry. They tell us to point fingers. They tell us to desire the downfall of others. But Christ in us tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as they are still sinners, Christ died for them. And Christ is what they need. Our Lord, our King, we pray that as you allow us to weather the storms here, that they might see Christ made manifest in us, that they might see, that they might hear, and they might believe. Lord, would you use us for your glory and the good of your people? Would you fortify our hearts? Would you strengthen them? Would you prepare us, Lord, for the difficulty that may lie ahead? Or maybe it's right here, it's right now, and we are struggling through it. Lord, may we trust in you and rely on your strength. And may you be glorified. And may people come to know the saving, the saving work of Christ. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Bethany Bible Fellowship. For more resources, visit our website at bbfoc.org.